Welcome to the sermon podcast of Trinity Church PCA in Collierville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, missioncollierville.org. So in the Gospel of Mark, he likes to group things. He doesn't always go chronologically. He likes to package things. We've already seen that. We saw the accusations that the Pharisees made against Jesus and how Mark grouped those. And then we saw the parables regarding the kingdom. Those were in in a group as well. And so now we are coming to one more, and this is a group of miracles that Jesus performs. And the first one begins at the end of of chapter 4, and it goes into the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. So it's a series of four miracles. And these miracles are written by Mark to help his audience, and we talked about this a little bit last week, to help his audience understand who Jesus really is as the Savior of mankind, as the long-awaited Messiah, as the King who has come to inaugurate His kingdom. Mark is saying, let me help you better understand who this man is. And so as we look at the miracle where Jesus calms the storm, we have to ask ourselves the same question. At this point in the Gospel of Mark, the end of chapter 4, do we understand who Jesus is? Do we, do we know who this man truly is? That's our question that we're going to look at this morning. And so there's three things. Number one, is Jesus a man and why is this important? Is Jesus God and why is this important? And then thirdly, The disciples question in verse 41, who is this? Who is this? Is Jesus a man? Is Jesus God? And then we're going to look at the disciples' question, who is this? First thing, is Jesus a man? And and if that's true, why is it important? So in our text, Jesus' popularity is growing. His teaching ministry is growing. And he gets into a boat, and he crosses the Sea of Galilee. This boat would have been between uh, 25 and 30 feet in length. So there's room for Jesus to do what? To take a nap. Why does Jesus take a nap? This is the only mention in the Gospel of Mark of Jesus sleeping. And the answer is, he's physically exhausted because of the demands of his ministry. Jesus is tired. And so when we look at this, when we examine this, when we think about this, we realize that Jesus is a man because men and women become tired. We, 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 we're physically exhausted at different points in the course of our life, and this is what Jesus is going through at this moment. Now, if we look at the rest of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see in the story of Jesus' life and his ministry many examples of him being a man. We see him eating with the apostles. We see him, tur- we see him uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, suffering, anxious, worried. He turns to the Father and he says, I don't know that I can go through this. I don't know that I can handle what I'm about to experience. 
He's sweating blood. Lord, let this pass if possible. We see Jesus on the cross and He's experiencing real pain. Human pain. As the nails have been driven through His hands and through His feet. As the crown of thorn has punctured His head and He's bleeding as He's experienced the cat of nine tails. Jesus has gone through real human suffering. We see the emotions of Jesus as a man when he looks at his mother and he turns to the apostle and he says, please take care of my mother. The Gospels are full of stories of a man who lived on this earth in flesh and blood. Born of the Virgin Mary. He was man. He was the Son of Man. Now, one of the things that we look to as a denomination in our Reformed tradition is the Westminster Larger Catechism. These are theological creeds and confessions that help guide us, that help give us direction, that help us understand the Word of God. I want you to hear question 39 of the Larger Catechism. Why did the mediator have to be human? Let me repeat that. Why did the mediator have to be human? Here's the answer. The mediator had to be human so that he might improve human nature, obey the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our own nature, and know firsthand what human infirmities feel like, and so that we might be adopted as sons and have comfort and access with boldness to the throne of grace. Jesus had to be human for several reasons according to the larger catechism. We're not going to go into all of them, but I want you to see three things in particular. Jesus took on flesh and He walked among us to obey the covenant perfectly. You see, if you study the Bible, if you look at the story of redemption from Genesis until you get to the Gospels, you see a picture that is replete with God's people failing over and over and over again. Because of the first sin of Adam, our DNA is tainted. And so we are just simply unable to obey God perfectly. We are not able to obey the covenants that He has established with His people. Think about your own children. You do not have to teach them how to be bad. You have to teach them how to be good. It is just simply in our nature. And so God's people were estranged from God. They were far from Him. They were away from Him. We did not have access to God. We did not have access to the Father. We needed redemption. We needed salvation. Someone had to obey the covenant perfectly. And according to God's arrangement with His people, according to the covenants, there needed to be a man who could represent us all, a second Adam, who would obey God perfectly, who would do everything that God said, who would never sin. We were in desperate need of this. And so Jesus comes and He takes on flesh and He lives in the ancient Middle East and He does what we are unable to do. He obeys the covenant absolutely, 100% perfectly. Jesus never sins. 
to his covenant obedience he gives to us. As our mediator, as our Messiah, as our Redeemer, as our Savior, he gives us that perfection. He gives us that covenant obedience. It comes to us as a blessing because we belong to him in faith. We needed Jesus as a human to represent us and to do all that we could not do. Secondly, Jesus takes on our punishment. So we have transgressed the law. We have been rebellious towards God. We are estranged from God. We want nothing to do with Him. If you look in the Bible and you follow the nation of Israel through the Old Testament, you see that time and time again, they give their hearts to the idols, to the gods of other nations. And sometimes... I make the mistake of looking at the Old Testament and looking at Israel, and I say, how could they do that when they've seen all that God has done for them? How could they worship false gods? How could they worship idols? And then if I stop and I reflect on my own self and my own sin nature and my own life, I realize that like Israel, time and time again, I make the same mistake. I turn from God and I pursue false idols. I am very good at crafting my own idols. I have an advanced degree in this. And more often than not, I want to be my own God. I want to pursue my own selfish goals. I want to pursue my agenda and my way, and I turn from God. And so I'm just like Israel. And you know what? Because God is just and because God is holy, because God is perfect in all His ways, and according to the covenant that He entered into with humanity, I deserve punishment. I deserve to be punished for my false worship and my sin and my total and complete and thorough corruption. I deserve punishment. And so here's what Jesus does. This is why Jesus becomes like us. Jesus goes to the cross and he takes our punishment. A human has to be punished for our covenant disobedience. And Jesus at Calvary looks to the Father and he says, give it all to me. Give me every single punishment that my people deserve. I want it all. I'll take it all. Give it all to me. And at that moment on the cross, the Father not only pours out our punishment on Jesus, but He pours out His wrath against sin on Jesus and He takes it. He takes it all. That's the point of the cross. That Jesus is a sacrificial atonement for us. And it had to be a representative of the human race. That's who Jesus is, and that is what He has done for us. So not only does Jesus representing humanity obey the covenant perfectly, not only does Jesus representing humanity take the punishment for God's people, but we also are adopted into the family of God through our older brother. Jesus Christ. We are adopted into the family of God through our older brother, 
Jesus Christ. Hear Galatians 3.26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. When Jesus is resurrected, He is resurrected into His glorified state and He ascends into heaven and He sits at the right hand of God in power and God crowns Him with authority and control and power over all things. And so through the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus comes to us and He gives us faith. He gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. He blesses His people. He takes all the blessings that He has earned and He says to us, here are some of my blessings. And then there's going to come a day when the kingdom comes in all its fullness and Jesus is going to give us all of these blessings. And one of the blessings that Jesus gives to us is He says, I represent you. I am your older brother. Welcome to the family. Jesus doesn't simply say, we're forgiven. Jesus says, welcome home. If you think of a king and you think of a castle and you think many, many years ago in Western Europe, you could have a king... And he could be wealthy, but the people still lived outside the castle. And they struggled. And sometimes if war was on the horizon, they were allowed to come into the castle for protection. But when that time passed, they were kicked out and they had to go back to their ordinary existence in life. But Jesus doesn't do that. As the king of the castle, he lowers the drawbridge and he invites everyone in and he says, this is your home. My spoils are your spoils. My home is your home. Welcome to the family. That's what he does for us as our older brother that we are adopted into the family of God. Second thing, is Jesus God? And if so, why is this important? Is Jesus God? Well, in our text this morning, we see that the boat is crossing the Sea of Galilee and a storm comes out of nowhere. Now, this is quite common for this area of the world. The Sea of Galilee is the largest freshwater lake in the world below sea level. And Around the Sea of Galilee are mountains and hills, and those hills funnel in winds from the desert and from the Mediterranean Sea. And so in a moment's notice, a severe storm can come out of nowhere. And so these men are crossing the lake, and this incredibly terrifying storm arises and there's something that you need to remember and think about. These were not inexperienced people crossing this lake. Remember, some of the apostles were fishermen who knew this area. So I think that helps us understand that this was not a low-level storm. But if they're this terrified... They believe that they're going to drown and die at any moment. As experienced fishermen, this was a significant storm. So they come to Jesus. They wake Him. And what does He do? He calms the storm. 
Jesus Christ is the Son of God, exercises authority over nature. Jesus does this repeatedly. Jesus shows his apostles and his followers that not only is he the Son of Man, but that he is the Son of God. We've already seen in the Gospel of Mark that he has made the blind able to see, that he has made crippled people able to walk. We know that in the other Gospels that he enables the deaf to hear, that he turns water to wine, that Jesus is miraculous that he seems to be in control of all things. Jesus is demonstrating to his apostles and to us that he is divine, that he is the Son of God, that he has come for his people from the throne room of heaven. He is man. He is God. Hear the larger catechism, question 38. Why did the mediator have to be God? The mediator had to be God so that he might sustain and keep his human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. That he might make his suffering, obedience, and intercession of real value and effect. And that in order to satisfy satisfy God's justice, he might gain God's favor, purchase his very own people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Is Jesus God? And the confession is saying, absolutely, he had to be God. Now, there's a lot of different things concerning this issue, and we could talk on this for days, but I'm going to look at two things. First of all, Jesus had to be God in order to obey the covenant perfectly. If a human... If it were up to a human, just a human, to obey the covenant perfectly, we'd know that it's not possible because they're born in sin. And so Jesus was born without sin, which enabled Jesus to obey God's law. It enabled Jesus to obey God's word. It enabled Jesus to do all that we could not do. It was important that Jesus was God, so that he could purchase our salvation, so that he could redeem us, so that he could undo the mess that we've made. That's who Jesus is. It's also important that Jesus was God so that he could withstand and uphold us on the cross, that he could withstand the wrath and the punishment that God metered out against our covenant unfaithfulness. It's important that Jesus was divine as He hangs from that cross and He takes on what belonged to us. If that was merely a man, He would have failed. But because Jesus is divine, He was able to atone for our sins. This is significant. We also understand that Jesus, as God, brings the kingdom of God to earth. This is not necessarily in the Westminster Larger Catechism answer, but it's true that Jesus had to be divine in order to bring the kingdom of God and to establish that kingdom on earth. 
The Father looks to the Son and He says, will you go? And Jesus, is, His love for the Father is so great and He is so desirous of obeying His will that Jesus comes to earth. And we see in the first few chapters of the Gospel of Mark that this is our King, that He has come from heaven to establish the kingdom of God. And if you will remember all the way back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, the kingdom of God is inaugurated. In other words, it has started, it has begun. So Jesus had to be divine in order to obey the covenant perfectly, to withstand the punishment and the wrath of God poured out against sin. Jesus had to be divine in order to bring the kingdom and establish it on earth to defeat Satan so that the kingdom could continue, so that the kingdom could continue to grow. If you'll remember all the way very all the way back to the very beginning of the sermon, I said, where is God in all of this? I'm standing in the devastation of Tuscaloosa. A body has been found. I apologize for the, for the just upfrontness of this, but it was true. A body had been found at the end of the street. As I'm standing and looking at the ruin, you can't help but think, where is God in all of this? And here's the answer. That Jesus has come to establish His kingdom and it is growing and it is expanding and it is enlarging and one day it will be made complete. One day the kingdom will be here in all its finality. That the kingdom is the answer to all the problems and troubles and struggles of this world and this life. When we look at devastation, when we think about a pandemic, when we think about people who are hurting, when we, when we experience sickness, when people that we are close to suddenly pass away, we must think about the kingdom. Because this is God's response to us. This is God saying to His people, I am going to work everything out for my glory. That there is coming a day when everything will be made perfect, when everything will be made right, when everything will be renewed, when everything will be created, and everyone will worship me. My people will worship me in perfection, in glory, in the new heavens and the new earth. And when that day arrives, all of this, which is really hard to understand, will make sense. And it will be good. The answer is the kingdom of God. And Jesus was the Son of God and the Son of Man who came and planted the kingdom. He inaugurated it on earth. And so we long for the day and we look for the day when it will come in all its fullness. We long for the day and we look for the day when it will come in all its fullness. And we get a tiny glimpse of it in our passage today. Asleep in the boat, he wakes up. A storm is raging. And Jesus brings it to a complete stop. Nature is warring against humanity. And like that, Jesus says, no more. 
and everything is made calm. And when that happens, we get a glimpse, a tiny glimpse of what it's like, going to be like in the kingdom when peace overtakes all of creation and it's perfect. And there will no longer be storms. And there will no longer be F4 tornadoes that kill people because sin will have been erased and God will be in control of his kingdom. And so we get a glimpse of it in when the king acts from that boat in the Sea of Galilee. Third point, who is this man? So there's something I want you to notice. If you look at verse 37, it says, great windstorm. Great windstorm. Then if you look at verse 39, Jesus, the king of the kingdom, restores order to the chaos. And Mark describes it as a great calm. In the Greek, it could be a mega calm. And then in verse 41, the disciples who are still not exactly sure who Jesus is, they have great fear. Now there's there's a reason why Mark is using this word. He's using the same word in Greek in all three instances. A great windstorm, a great calm, a great fear. What Mark is trying to help his audience understand is that this is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary teacher from Nazareth. That this is someone special. This is someone miraculous. This is God on earth. Because only God could do this. So we have a great windstorm, we have great calm, we have great fear because Jesus is the greatest. That's what Mark is trying to tell us. He's bringing us to the feet of Jesus and he's saying to his audience in Rome and he's saying to us today, here is the greatest. Here he is. It is Jesus Christ. There is no one greater than him. So this morning as you think about the text, you think about what he is saying in the Gospel of Mark to us, remember this as you leave this place this morning. Jesus is greater than your problems. Jesus is greater than your infirmities. Jesus is greater than your shame. He is greater than your marital struggles. He is greater than your family problems. He is greater than the difficulties that you face at work. He is greater than your financial shortcomings. Jesus is greater than everything. He is greater than our sin. And He is greater than death. There is no greater love than this. Jesus Christ. Take that to heart. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you are the one who calms the storms of life. And that you are our Savior and you are our Redeemer. That you are the Messiah who will bring your kingdom in all its fullness one day. And all storms, all chaos, all problems, all struggles will be calmed forever. Lord Jesus, we rejoice that you are so much greater than us, that you are the greatest of all. 
And so we give you our hearts and we worship you and we trust in you. And we are thankful that you are the Son of Man and you are the Son of God. That you obeyed the covenant perfectly and that you took the punishment that we deserved. And as a result of all of this, we belong to you. That we belong to the family of God. That you are our older brother and that we are sons and daughters of the King who will rule forever and ever. Amen.